This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 30, Leviticus chapters 20 through 23. Now, if this portion of Leviticus sounds all too familiar, it's because many of the prohibitions in this portion have been prohibited before. But now we have the punishments, which for the most part is... The first son of Deuteronomy of Gath. Yes. 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 You have been found guilty by the elders of the town of uttering the name of our Lord. And so, as a blasphemer, you are to be stoned to death. Offer your children to Molech, God will cut you off, and anyone who harbors you from the Jewish people. Consult with the spirit realm, God will cut you off too. And before you can say ghost whisperer, we're back into the sexy stuff. Condemned, as in condemned to death, is the man who sleeps with another man's wife, the wife of his father, the wife of his son, or the abominable other man. Or marrying slash sleeping with a mother and her daughter, or sleeping with an animal or your sister, or with a woman who is having her period, or your aunt, or your brother's wife. Whew. Violate these commandments, and like the previous abominable residents of the land, you will be vomited out, rejected and expelled as you have become tame to the core. And since we're back on the tame thing again, remember to keep those animals separated, and don't consult with necromancers. Chapter 21 brings us back to the Kohanim, where Moshe lays down the laws of mourning as being in contact with a dead body, Tameifies, so a Kohen can mourn his parents. Uh, he can mourn his son, he can mourn his daughter, or his brother, or his virgin sister, but he cannot mourn his wife. Nor is he to perform all the other mourning rituals like shaving his head, or face, or cutting himself, or any of that stuff. And since we're talking about Kohanim and their wives... Now you take my wife, please. <laughs> but only if she's not a sex worker or a divorcee. And if the Kohen has a daughter and she's involved in sex work, her choice of profession also profanes her father, and thus she must be punished with fire. In the last section of chapter 21, we focus on a particular Kohen who stands out and is regarded as high priest material. He's anointed with the oil of anointing and dressed in the appropriate garments. This man must take great pains not to become Tame, even for his parents. He can only marry a virgin. The chapter concludes with a list of physical defects, which would disqualify a Kohen from serving in the dwelling. And if you take a peek at the second half of chapter 22, you'll notice that the list of disqualifying Kohen defects here and the list of disqualifying near-offering defects there are very, very similar, because the message is clear. The Kohen, like the animal he offers up, must be whole and complete. Chapter 22, surprise, surprise, continues with the Kohen instructing him about what he can and cannot touch when he is tame, especially the kodashim, or holy donations, which he apparently has laying about the house. The same concern is expressed about the non-kohanim who live and work in the kohen's household, such as, quote, a settler belonging to a priest or a hired hand, although a person purchased by the priest or anyone born into the household may eat of the kodashim. The kohen's daughter, if she married a non-kohen, cannot eat from the kodashim, but if she is divorced from the non-Kohen, or widowed and childless, and returns to her father's house, she can eat from the Kodashim. In short, anyone who eats the Kodashim by mistake, because someone forgot to put their name on it when they put it in the fridge, well, he or she must add a fifth to the amount and present it to the Kohen with a sincere apology and, a, and an Asham offering. 
Chapter 22 concludes with a ban on sacrificing an animal before its eighth day in the world, which is kind of like an animal bris, except the animal is the bagel and lox. Chapter 23 is all about the holy days, starting with the Shabbat, then Pesach, and the agricultural festival called Reshit Katsir, or the festival of the sheaf elevating, accompanied by an offering up of sheep, grain, two-tenths of a measure of flour mixed with oil, a fire offering, and a fourth of hin of wine. This festival falls sometime during the week of Pesach and was the source of some controversy between the Pharisees and Sadducees at the turn of the first millennium of a common era, as the date of the elevating up determined from when you began counting the seven weeks of the Omer leading up to the next big festival enumerated in this chapter, the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot. Before the list of holy days continues, God commands Moshe to tell the Jews that when they harvest, they are to leave the corners of the field for the, quote, afflicted and for the sojourner. The chapter concludes with the holy days of Rosh Hashanah, a day of horn blasting on the first day of the seventh month, followed by the afflictions of Yom Kippur on the 10th and the pilgrimage festival of Hutz on the 15th, which concludes the harvest. God tells Moshe that the Jews must take in hand, quote, the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palms and boughs of thick tree foliage and willows of the brook. And you are to rejoice before the presence of Adonai, your God, for seven days. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. I want to talk about two topics in this episode. First, I want to talk about food, and then I want to talk about the food economy as it relates to the Kohanim. For the traditionally observant, the the holy days enumerated in Leviticus 23 loom very, very large in the consciousness as well as the calendar. They are landmark moments in the year, tent poles, compass points, whatever metaphor you want to employ, they orient the year, they orient time. For the less traditionally observant, these holy days command attention mostly because of the traditional foods that we eat on these days. Rosh Hashanah, bring on the tzimis and the round raisin challah. Yom Kippur, well, you're not supposed to eat for 25 hours, but there's the take-fast favorite, which of late in my family has been poutine. Yes, poutine. And for all uh, y'all non-Canadians, I'll put a link to the Wikipedia page about poutine on the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. But then, of course, there's the breakfast meal as well. And then you fast-forward to Sukkot, the final Tishrei holiday, which is about where you eat food, mainly outside in the rain and wind. Then, for a month, you can cleanse, before it starts up again in Kislev, with Hanukkah, and its fried amazingness, potato latkes and or donuts, filled with pectin and red diet number 40. I mean, a jam of some sort. Then, Tevet also provides a bit of a respite and a minor fast day to get your gut ready for the assault of dried fruits and nuts associated with Tubishvat. And for folks who conduct a Tubishvat Seder in the spirit of the Pesach Seder, they have to come up with 30 species of fruit and nuts, along with, but not limited to, red wine, white wine, cake or crackers, olives, dates, grapes, figs, pomegranates, etrogs, apples, walnuts, almonds, carobs, pears, azaroles, quinces, cherries, red crab apples, pistachios, pine seeds, hackberries, and lupines. Olives, dates, grapes, figs, and pomegranates are additionally significant because they are fruits of the land of Israel. Then on the heels of Tevet comes Adar and Purim, which serves as an anti-Halloween. You still get to dress up as a drunken politician or slutty harem girl, or, for a change of pace, dress up like a non-biblical character, but instead of looting the neighborhood for candy, 
You go from house to house and give candy and fruit and hamantashen to folks. Wow, 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 is very nice. Then Nisan, the apogee of the Jewish food year. Pesach, the industrial might of the Western world, turns its attention to the engineering and production of kosher for Pesach products, like unleavened Cheerios and bagels and Coca-Cola with cane sugar instead of high fructose corn syrup, which is a hipster delicacy. Households are cleaned, various matzah recipes are tried, and satyrs are satyred, and folks weather the first and middle movements of the telling of the exodus from Egypt in heightened anticipation of the first course, which is inevitably matzah ball soup. The month of Iyar has a recent addition to the Jewish food calendar, an expansion team to the professional league, Yom HaTzma'ut, or Israel Independence Day. I say this, and perhaps it is a bit premature, as I have argued and argue again that Israeli Independence Day will not fully become integrated into the diaspora Jewish psyche until Independence Day has its own unvarnished, uncontested food item with which to commemorate it. Now, folks might say, Israel Independence Day? What are you talking about? It has falafel. Falafel, that's the food for Israel Independence Day. Well, sort of. Chef, author, and TV personality Anthony Bourdain visited Jerusalem as part of his eating and cooking travel show, Parts Unknown. He met and ate with Israeli Jews and Palestinians. And in his jaunt through the old city with Yotam Otolenghi, chef and co-author of Jerusalem, a cookbook, Otolenghi settled a dispute about the provenance about falafel once and for all. He said, Is there a historically provable answer to who invented it? Who made it first? The one thing that is very clear that is in this part of the world, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, it's been cooked for many, many, many generations. On the other hand, you get like Jews from Yemen coming here in the 50s. Right. So they can say, hey, my great uncle was in Syria at the time, and with his ham, I remember distinctly. So there's actually no answer to it, but the question of food appropriation, or who owns the food, is massive here. They can go on arguing about it forever. I'll put a link up to the full episode at the Facebook page and at the indexju.com. So, we have to consider other candidates. Hummus, shakshuka, couscous. Although it would be amazing if folks all over North America sat down to a nice big plate of shakshuka to commemorate the establishment of the Jewish state, I just don't see it catching on. But this is not really what I want to talk about, although all this talk about shakshuka is making me very, very hungry. So, for good measure, I'll, I'll include Yotamo Tolengi's recipe for shakshuka, also at the Facebook page and at thenextjew.com. I have made it before, and it is amazing. Anyway. Uh, what I also wanted to talk about is the dwelling or temple economy, or more specifically, how it is that a Kohen has Kodashim laying about his house where anyone can get their hands on it. Kind of like Homer Simpson bringing home some fuel rods from the Springfield Nuclear Power Plant and worrying about Bart getting his hands on them. Although the Tanakh will get into this a little bit later in the book of Numbers, the economic system that will be set up to support the Kohanim and Levites is based on the allocation of surplus. According to Divine Plan, all the tribes in Israel will, re will receive inheritances in the land promised to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and oh yeah, the matriarchs too, I suppose. And they'll have this land to till and to plow, the lots are to be based on size, so tribes like Judah and Menashe will have substantially larger plots than tribes of Dan and Yisachar. And some will be landlocked, and some will have access to the sea, and some will work the plains, and some will cultivate in the hill country. Except for Levi, who instead would be allocated 48 cities throughout the country where they would perform in exchange for a portion of the people's agricultural yield various religious and educational services. 
This portion, or ma'aser, from the root eser, or ten, would come to ten percent of the total harvest. The Levites would then set aside a ma'aser for the kohanim. In addition to this, there were other trumot, or gifts, for the kohanim, some of which might sound familiar as we've discussed them in previous Tanakh casts. The first is where a Jew would redeem his firstborn male child, otherwise known as pidyon haben. It involves a portion of agricultural surplus. Pidyon haben still happens today, and money is still given to the kohanim, and the kohen will still lift the redemption coins up as part of the ceremony. There is also the bikurim, or first fruits. There was also the challah, or dough bread, which is also commemorated today by the practice of burning a pinch of challah dough in the oven. In dwelling in temple times, the Kohen would get the first portion of this dough. The Kohen would also receive a portion of near offering, that is, various sections and cuts of meat. The Kohanim also received what is called a Trumagdola, or great offering, which was a portion of the finished grain, wine, and oil, separated for the Kohen before the first Maaser, or Maaser Rishon, set aside for the Levites. And depending on how you calculate this Truma, it could equal up to approximately 2% of the annual agricultural yield. So, if you add it up, about 12% of the total agricultural yield was given to the Kohanim and the Levites, and then in addition, about the same amount was set aside in cuts of meat from all non-sanctified, ritually slaughtered domestic animals for the Kohanim. And then there was the option of consecrating property for the purpose of the temple upkeep, otherwise known as Hekdesh Bedek Habayit, or for the purpose of providing for additional near offerings, otherwise known as Hekdesh Mizbech, which would result in additional near offerings and additional meat set aside. So in short, the dwelling-slash-temple was flush with more meat than they knew what to do with, and without refrigeration or a Ronco five-tray food dehydrator and beef jerky maker, and, oh yeah, the bit about the kodashin that could not be resold, because as we already discussed in Leviticus, you know, a person who inadvertently commits a trespass in holy things has to bring in a sham and make restitution for the loss caused and pay an additional fine, all of which results in even more meat for the kohanim. Incidentally, the Mishkan slash temple also became a depository of cash money and rich in ornamentation and gold vessels, which would later make it a periodic target for spoilation or plunder or just a source of funds for paying of tributes. Which doesn't really address the uh, more practical question of Where's the beef? The answer, apparently, at home. The Kohanim were permitted to take many of the donations and cuts of meat to go. Some were permitted to be consumed within the walls of Jerusalem, like the firstborn of any domestic kosher animal or first fruits. But many could be given, and more importantly, consumed outside Jerusalem. And this is where I guess reality sets in. If you allow Kohanim to marry, they will have wives, and they will have sons and daughters, and they will need a place for them to live and something for them to eat. And if you allow Kohanim to appropriate some of the money or land that flows from the people into the dwelling Mishkan slash temple, then those Kohanim will set up extensive households that also include slaves and hired workers. And then, of course, there's all that meat. So a system must be set up whereby folks in the Kohen's household, including a, the Kohen himself, but how they have to be in the right state, that is, tahor, to snack on all that extra Kodashim lying around. And yes, it would include the sons, the Y-chromosomal errands, the little Kohanim in training, running around the house in their nappies. But it also surprisingly and pragmatically includes the wives and daughters. However, if these daughters became wives of non-Kohanim, and thus became part of a non-Kohen household, they would lose their right to partake 
from the Kodashim. But if a non-Kohen woman married a Kohen, thus officially joining the Kohen's household, then she would be able to enjoy the fruits, or more like the meats, of her husband's labor. So in other words, the Kohen is allowed to bring home the brisket, and better yet, his wife doesn't have to fry it up in the pan. Perfume for that 24 hour woman. I can work till 5 o'clock. Come home and read your tickety talk. Tonight I'm gonna cook for the kids. And if it's loving you, one, I can kiss you and give you the shiver and fit. Ajoli, the 8 hour perfume for your 24 hour woman. <laughs> Anyway, as always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's at facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T. Or at thenextyou.com, or leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish. For our final episode on Leviticus, episode 31, Leviticus chapters 24 through 27. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah.